Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The pandemic has been a destroyer of lives, livelihoods and lifestyles. But as well as destroying, it could help remake. Take, for example, the world of classical music. How this has affected conductors is really interesting because, by and large, all those great names have been entirely absent for the last seven months, and nobody's really missed them. In recent times, the barons of the classical music world, the great conductors, the omniscient maestros, have been challenged. Their expense, their personal style, their occasional abuses have come under scrutiny. And now the coronavirus makes its own deadly music. Is the writing on the wall for the old-fashioned maestro conductor and will classical music go down as well? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, overpaid, oversexed and over the hill, has the maestro had his day. I came up through a slightly unusual route because my dad was a conductor of a brass band. That's the voice of Richard Morrison, the chief culture critic and music critic at The Times. He's telling me how he came to a career writing about and following classical music. Born in 1954, as a boy, Richard played the trombone in the Hendon Band, a brass ensemble run by his dad in North London. Which was very unusual, because nearly all great brass bands are in Yorkshire or South Wales or Cornwall or Scotland. But the advantage of being in London was, of course, when all these fantastic players from the north came down to London colleges to study music, they all came and played in my dad's band. And both of his brothers, my uncles, played in that band. And so it was a wonderful education for a young lad. Richard picked up the trombone when he was just eight, inspired by his uncle Stuart. So I sat next to my uncle, who was actually a a really good trombonist. He was in the Horse Guards band during the war. He had the unusual talent of playing the trombone while controlling a horse with his knees. (laughs) (laughs) A talent which you've inherited, I presume. Well, 
it's not a talent that you can transfer to many other parts of life. But anyway, he. So I learned uh, to play the trombone quite well, actually, with his tutorage. And it got me into Cambridge, actually, because I think, as is always with those Cambridge colleges, if you're good at rowing, you get in. If you play an instrument which they need in the, in the college orchestra, you get in as well. Richard studied music at Magdalen College in Cambridge, and for a while it looked like the in-and-out life of a trombonist was to be his. But in his final year, he had an accident while playing squash. Someone knocked out my front tooth, which, if you know anything about playing a brass instrument, is pretty vital for your embouchure. So that put an end to any thought of a career as a working musician. Richard became a teacher for a couple of years. Then, one day in 1976, the phone rang. On the other end was an old Magdalen College friend, Alan Rusbridger, who would go on to be editor of the Guardian newspaper, and he told Richard... There's a vacancy for someone to write about music on a little music magazine that just started up. So I applied for that and I got it. The magazine was called Classical Music. It's still around today. Richard wrote in its very first issue. And then about two years later, I went to another music magazine. And then in the mid-80s, I got a call from someone at the time saying, we're looking for a music critic. Would you come and do it? And I'm afraid I've been doing this for 36 years. So I've seen an awful lot of concerts and operas at that time. You are particularly centred on classical music, aren't you? That's right, yes. It's hard to generalise these days because genres are kind of merging into each other. So in the old days, you know, you, you weren't just a classical critic, you were a Baroque critic or a contemporary classical critic. Now, I mean, you cover everything. And, and actually, in the same concert these days, you're liable to get some jazz and some pop as well as some orchestral music. Do you remember some of the earliest classical concerts you went to as a youngster? My dad took me to a lot of proms when I was in my early teens. And then I used to go with a bunch of friends from school. And it was, and still is, unfortunately not this summer, but a great education because you stood there for practically no money at all. And night after night, you heard the most amazing classics um, given to you by some wonderful orchestras. Do you feel that you inhabit not so much a kind of rarefied atmosphere, that in a sense, the almost only discussion that you have about classical music in a wider setting is about the last night of the proms these days, and that's what most people know about it. Is that ever a source of frustration? It is a source of frustration because I don't think it's true. Of course, it's a minority interest, but then there are a lot of minority interests that are fascinating. I go to an awful lot of concerts, and particularly in London, the audiences are actually quite mixed and they're quite young. Composers of the day are actually trying to get back to communicating with the audience. While Richard loves all things musical, and as we've discovered, classical music above them all, today we're discussing the maestro and Richard's theory that COVID-19 may deal the death stroke to a calling already becoming obsolete. To the uninitiated, and that includes me, the maestro is an old-fashioned word for the conductor in the big orchestras or operas the star of the show. But in recent years, that star has tarnished. So why is that? The story of James Levine is a good place to start. James Levine was the most important conductor in American opera for 
40 years. It's as simple as that. I think if you if you go into a performance with the idea that you're going to be perfect, this is not an artistic concept. There, there's no such thing for an artist as perfect. He was a conductor of the Metropolitan Opera in New York, which is an amazingly well-endowed, glitzy, has all the best singers, fantastic orchestra. And he really was the linchpin of that for many, many decades. He came up through the American system. That's quite important to say because most conductors in America who are conducting major institutions come from Europe. That's still the case today. But he was very much an American-made musician. And so it was a matter of great pride that actually he would take over this incredibly important institution, the Met in New York. When you thought of opera conductors around the world, he was always in one of the top one or two or three. We're in a subterranean rehearsal room. Maestro James Levine is leading an early musical rehearsal with some of the principals in the cast. Pronounced together like a chorus. <laughs> que ragado, right there. And one. Que ragado, that's right. I'm watching a YouTube video from the Metropolitan Opera released in 2014. It shows James Levine rehearsing with his singers for Verdi's opera Falstaff. To look at, he has a full, ruddy face. He's on the chubby side, a great shock of hair sprouting out each side of his head, and he wears big, square glasses. He sits in an electronic wheelchair. Two years earlier, he'd fallen down a flight of stairs while on holiday, fracturing his spine. One, two, one, two. He's animated, expressive, clearly engaged with the musicians and singers, as they react to his orders and commands. He is the centre of it all. Excellent, excellent. And when you keep that action up with those cues, that'll be really thrilling. Let's go right on. He trained the orchestra to be probably one of the best opera orchestras in the world. He brought in all the greatest singers, and he was actually a very good conductor of a certain sort of repertoire. He was a, a round peg in a round hole for a while. Is he charismatic? No, I wouldn't say <laughs> I wouldn't say that at all, which is probably why he's made his career in opera where the conductor is kind of buried down in the pit there. <laughs> but he was respected because he did have this way of training that orchestra to be a wonderful opera orchestra. So, there he is, he's this great man. He's been there for a very long time, incredibly well respected, and then a beloved and famed conductor is off the job. The Metropolitan Opera suspended James Levine amid claims of sexual abuse and misconduct. Conductor and former director of the Metropolitan Opera House behind me is now under fire. The Met said on Monday that more than 70 people had been interviewed in the investigation. Levine denies the accusations. Is the first high-profile misconduct claim to rock the classical music scene since a wave of accusations has toppled other famous faces. Through his life, it would be fair to say there have been allegations about him which have swirled around the musical world. But then three years ago, there were very much more serious allegations made which the Metropolitan Opera investigated that he sexually abused young men, people who were in a position where he had some power over them. They were young singers or people on, on courses he ran. And it's important to stay at this stage. He has always denied these allegations. But nevertheless, the Metropolitan Opera took the view that they were so serious that they would sack him. He was uh, sacked almost straight away. 
So in 2017, James Levine's career at the Metropolitan Opera in New York was over. But the story wasn't. There was this massive lawsuit started uh, with a countersuit. He sued for, I think, $5.8 million. This was all went to mediation before it reached court. And it was settled. And at the end of it, the person who was alleged to have done all this wrong ended up walking away with $3.5 million as a settlement. A settlement was reached late last year, but only became public last month when it was leaked to the New York Times. How had he walked away so much the wealthier? It seems to have hinged on the fact that in his contract, which of course was drawn up decades ago, there was no clause for any sort of moral turpitude or anything. In other words, the only way that the Metropolitan Opera could have sacked him was if he died. <laughs> Let me get this absolutely clear. We're talking about $3.5 million he got in a settlement because in the original contract, they hadn't had a clause specifically saying he shouldn't go around effectively sexually molesting people. Well, that's true. But then back in the 1970s or 80s or whatever it was, that sort of thought wouldn't have entered the mind of anyone running an opera house or an, or an orchestra. And you wouldn't have thought of putting it in someone's contract. So, in the distant past, either that kind of behaviour was not regarded as sackable or it wasn't regarded as something you would want to talk about. It was that sort of um, thing that was going on. Just as bad in the classical music world, actually, as in the film world. And you say the distant past. It wasn't that distant a past. It's not just Levine, of course, that's been accused of this. Important to say, all along, he has denied the allegations. It's also Placido Domingo and two other conductors, Daniel Gatti and Charles Dutois, all of whom have also denied the allegations, but, but were sacked by their orchestras. And these are people who are in their mid, middle age, not, they're not old. It's something that's, until quite recently, been accepted. Richard, what's been the reaction of the classical music world, both in 2017, when the allegations were first made, and to what's happened since? Let's divide it into professional musicians and music lovers, the audience, if you like. Among professional musicians, it was almost entirely a case of it's been rumoured for so many years, so many rumours about so many different conductors, at last it's all been given an airing. Among music lovers, it's been much more mixed and nuanced because certainly in America, where the Me Too movement has a, a, a much more of a grip, these people have been ostracised straight away. But in places like Spain and Italy, where there isn't so much emphasis on Me Too, let's put it that way, these people have been given their jobs back. In fact, James Levine is making his big comeback this coming January in Florence. Daniel Gatti has been um, conducting in, in Rome. So it depends where you are in the world. Now, with Levine, the people who made the accusations were young men. Did that make it all more or less complicated? Because, of course, the Me Too movement was seen in the first place as being mostly assaults or unpleasant behaviour towards women. In the internal musical world, it's regarded as much the same. A lot of gay men are in opera, let's put it that way. I think an abuse of a young man would be seen as absolutely every much as serious, every bit as serious. It's more a question of the imbalance between the power of the maestro who can make your career, he can give you a job that could launch your career in a very stellar way, especially if you're running the Metropolitan Opera, or rejecting that and then 
maybe never finding another opening in your life. That That is a really interesting point at which to move over into this entire question of the, the maestro. How would you describe a maestro in the classical music world? <laughs> well, the very word now is only used by musicians with the most heavy uh, larding of irony and sarcasm. <laughs> I don't, especially in Britain. I mean, I don't, I don't think you get a member of the London Symphony Orchestra saying, "Oh, the maestro said this" in a in a sort of serious way. It's it, it's a word that comes from the days of people like Toscanini and Klemperer, who were these absolute dictatorial figures, wonderful musicians, but they expected a level of obedience and not answering back that just wouldn't be tolerated today. It reminded me of, was it the Duke of Wellington, who, when he had his first cabinet meeting as prime minister, uh, someone asked him how it went, and he said, uh, oh, it's extraordinary. I gave them their orders, and they all wanted to sit around discussing it. (laughs) (laughs) So I take it they are paid a lot more than ordinary members of the orchestra, or even than some of the best soloists. Yes. In one of the holidays from my university, I went to work for the BBC Accounts Department, and uh, <laughs> which was an amazing education. I'm probably breaking the official secrets out by telling you this after 50 years or whatever. But one of the contracts that passed over my desk was the contract for the Berlin Philharmonic to play at the proms under Herbert von Karajan. <laughs> And I can't remember the exact figures, but what I do remember was that Carrie-Anne's fee was more than the entire orchestra got. In other words, there were 100 musicians, and the Berlin Philharmonic are probably the best in the world, 100 top-class instrumental players, and this one guy in the middle got more than the rest of them put together. And I think that's still a formula that holds at the very highest level. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Let's talk about how the pandemic has affected all this. What's happened to classical music in the pandemic? I, I presume it's trodden the same difficult path that all the other performing arts have. It's been catastrophic for orchestras and opera houses. And I feel so sorry for them because some of them are trying really, really hard to put on concerts with the orchestra a bit distanced, tiny audiences, streamed to as many people as they can. But the regulations change almost every week. The finances just don't add up. And a lot of these orchestras don't qualify for the government support. For example, the London Symphony Orchestra, because it's been successful in the past, has built up a bit of an endowment, it hasn't qualified for any of this rescue package that the government's put together for the arts, which seems to you know be penalising success in a, in a funny sort of way. How this has affected conductors is really interesting because by and large, all those great names have been entirely absent for the last seven months. Mm. And and nobody's really missed them. <laughs> you know, people have been putting on concerts in, in very kind of ad hoc circumstances. Usually at the last moment, someone phones you up and says, oh, I put on a, um, a wonderful chamber concert at St. John Smith Square in a couple of weeks' time. Will you come to it? And you go along. And of course, these great musicians are used to having agents that sort out their schedule two years in advance, sort out their travel. Well, of course, now you can't even commit to a concert in two weeks, never mind two years. So they've been absent. That's really interesting because what it suggests is that we may have morphed into a situation of almost kind of pop-up classical music. And of course, what you're saying is the maestro is anything but a pop-up figure. That's exactly right. Plus, I mean, uh, the musical world has has also been, you know, lobbied by the environmental lobby. And the notion of touring anyway is hugely questionable in the future because to get, uh, well, even a rock band around, around the world is a huge carbon footprint you build up there. To take an orchestra is even more so because of the number of players, all the instruments you need to take. And People are saying, well, what's the point of all that? What's the point of having Japanese orchestra coming to London playing Mahler, where we've got orchestras that could do Mahler perfectly well ourselves? What's the point of a British orchestra going and touring New York when New York's got its own great orchestra? And of course, as far as the conductors are concerned, people are saying, well, actually, we, we, what we need now is conductors who are based in the city, who are going to do all the work of going into schools, enthusing people about classical music, being on site rather than just flying in two days before the concert, doing the concert and flying off to Geneva or, or Los Angeles or somewhere. One of the things that you can see happening in, in a whole series of ways, maybe in theatre, maybe elsewhere, is that new forms will come up and maybe actually in some ways they will be more dexterous, more adaptable, more innovative than the old forms were. Is that what you think is going to happen in classical music? Musicians are very resourceful, but what they don't expect is sort of seven months and more of absolutely nothing. The Musicians' Union did a survey of their membership and a third of the members said they were seriously thinking about leaving the profession altogether. A third? A third, yeah. And that surprised me. I'd, I'd have thought it'd be even more, but it shows how much they love music, that they're prepared to 
desperately hope that something good is going to come next year. I think there'll be much more imagination about where classical music takes place. If the concert halls are locked shut because, you know, local authorities can't work through all those regulations that you need now to open the halls, then, you know, there are plenty of other places that classical musicians could go and perform. I went to an amazing concert, the Beethoven 7th, semi-open air, so it got round all the problems. And it didn't just draw the music lovers, but it drew people who are on the way home from work. And I thought, yes, this is a future. It's not a very kind of stable or structured future, but it is a way forward if people can be constantly imaginative. Now, the one person that doesn't seem to have much room for is the Levines. There is that bunch of them who are mostly, but not all in their 60s, 70s and 80s, even 90s, who they've been ingrained in a certain way of doing things for so many decades that I don't see that they have the capacity to think outside the box or even to say, yeah, I can see times are hard. I'll, I'll just take a tenth of my fee. And I think that's where the, the writing's on the wall. So this, in between the Me Too movement for a few of them, the coronavirus, and then the environmental reasons you cited earlier, it's kind of, well, it's a good operatic term. It's kind of curtains for them. <laughs> well, I wouldn't underestimate either the reactionary conservative forces within classical music to try and cling on to these institutions that perhaps should have had their time. The Metropolitan Opera, to take a you know, case we've been talking about, it's been closed since March, obviously. They've announced that they're going to open in October 2021. Well, by that time, people in New York will have forgot what opera is. And yet there's still this determination that they're going to go back to having the grand opera nights that they had, you know, back in the 1940s. I think there will be some institutions around the world that that do try and keep things the way they are. But I don't think, particularly in the UK, where we haven't got the money to do that, I think we've got to be really much more imaginative about finding new ways to make music. Do you worry for the future of classical music? And, and, in, and I imagine you might say, well, I have done in the past, so that would be nothing new. But do you worry more now? Yes, of course I have. I've, when I first started off as a music critic, the most senior music critic of the times, William Mann, who is a great, great figure, said to me, oh, I'm glad I'm getting out now. I don't think there'll be much of a future for people like you in 10 years' time. Well, you know, that was in the early 80s. There's always this worry about something as precarious, if you like, as classical music, particularly in the UK, where unlike in Germany, we don't give them massive subsidy. But I do worry more now because of this seven months of nothing, the feeling of even if we get back things back next year, we're never going to get things back to the level of work that we had. That is that is fairly prevalent now in, in the musical world. But British orchestras, you know, they played through the wars, they played through the Great Depression, they always found a way of surviving. And things must have been pretty tough in the 1920s if you were a musician and, and you got paid tuppence for a concert and you didn't know when your next concert was going to happen. They still survived. I think you don't go into music unless you really, really love music. Music. And that's the thing you've got to cling on to. I think things will uh, survive. I don't think we will ever get back to the way we were. But perhaps in many ways, that's not a bad thing. It's 
Three years on from being dismissed by the Metropolitan Opera for alleged sexual assaults, James Levine is back. He will return to opera in Florence this January, conducting a production of Berlioz's The Damnation of Faust. He denies any wrongdoing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Richard Morrison, the Times' chief culture writer and music critic. You can read more of Richard's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on The Times radio app along with all the other podcasts from The Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. See you soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.